This is Creative Mornings, a podcast showcasing the global creative community. Hey everyone, welcome to the Creative Mornings podcast. This is Matt, and this week's episode is the final episode of our third season. But before we get started, we'd just like to take one moment to thank our three global partners who make Creative Mornings possible, MailChimp, Shutterstock, and Wix. Thank you for supporting our creative community around the world and for fueling this global engine of generosity. We truly believe in these companies not just because they support us, but because they are products used at Creative Mornings every day. Every month, over 160 Creative Mornings chapters send out over a million emails to morning people all over the world. Our weekly newsletter is the pulse of the creative universe, and it arrives safely in inboxes thanks to our friends at MailChimp. They make newsletters easy and even fun. It's no wonder MailChimp has over 15 million users. Shutterstock is Creative Morning's official partner for visual inspiration with a library of over 125 million royalty-free images, video clips, and music tracks. Shutterstock supports conversation, community, and professional development for creative people worldwide, and they're offering 20% off standard accounts to the entire Creative Morning's community at shutterstock.com slash creative mornings. Finally, Wix is the official Creative Morning's partner for web publishing. Wix has everything you need to create your own stunning website for free. No creative limits, no coding, just the freedom to express yourself and manage your business online. Wix was founded on the belief that everyone should be able to develop, create, and contribute online, and the team at Creative Mornings couldn't agree more. MailChimp, Shutterstock, and Wix are companies that give a damn. They're companies with heart, and they're champions of creativity. Thank you again for supporting the Creative Mornings community. And now, this week's episode. Today's talk is part of a series on love. It's from the New York City chapter in July of 2016, and I'll give you fair warning, it's an emotional one. Our speaker is Maggie Doyne, an American philanthropist who adopted and became mother to over 50 Nepalese children, won the CNN Hero of the Year Award in November 2015, and founded the Blink Now Foundation and the Kopula Valley Children's Home and School in Sirket, Nepal, where she Skyped me from. Hey, can you... Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you fine. Uh, sounds like you're calling me from a cave, though. <laughs> oh, really? That's Nepal for you. <laughs> I'm like in the downtown area okay. of the town that we live in. Um, I'm just getting ready to go back and do kids' dinner and bedtime and satsang and everything. Okay, so that was actually my next question. What is the evening routine like for you there? Because it is about, about that time. Um, so every single night, the kids have a family dinner. And um, it's usually rice and beans and some sort of vegetable. And then right after dinner, they go and, like, finish up homework and play around the house before it gets completely dark. And then um, some of us grown-ups will eat a little bit together. Sometimes we eat with the kids, sometimes, and usually together as the staff. And then um, we go up and do something called family satsang, which is, the whole entire family, like all of the kids sit in a circle and it's in a really big family, like the one time where we're all in the same room together. And we do like a little bit of singing, um, some prayer, meditation, and usually like a big family meeting where we talk about the day or announcements for the next day. Um, we sing something called the Gayatri Mantra, which is like a, a Hindu prayer for peace and um it's kind of like a time to like come to center and calm ourselves down before bedtime uh and just a 
a way for us all to be together in a circle. And so there's like different versions. Sometimes we'll like listen to a podcast and satsang. Sometimes we'll do a dancing satsang. Sometimes it's a birthday party. Sometimes it's like a really serious family meeting because two kids got in a fight. Um, okay. But it's it's always a bit different, usually complaining about kids leaving their laundry out or something. And then, <laughs> and then from there, we get ready for bedtime. And the older kids finish up homework, and we put the little kids to bed. And anyone who needs medicine gets medicine. And then the kids go to bed between, like, 8.30 and 9.30, depending on how old they are. So wow. that's, that's what's ahead of me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine what dinner is like, let alone putting them all to bed. Yeah, like it, imagine putting 48 kids to bed. It's, it's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not at all. It, it must be hectic. I know. It's it's always mad. It's like organized chaos, right, but right. really good chaos. I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure it is. Um, all of this wonderful work that you do in Nepal, it falls under the umbrella of the Blink Now Foundation. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so within the Blink Now Foundation, there's different like community development projects. The main, um, our main projects are the school, which is a day program, and it's a center where about 350 kids come every single day, and um, you know, standard curriculum, and it's just a happy place, and um, that everyone comes and gets an education in healthcare. There's like a medical clinic that we run out of there, and then at the home, we. Um, run it's a children's home with some kids who live there as like a permanent residence and a family and then uh we have a women's center as well so within the blink now foundation there's sort of like these different development projects that we do all with the same goal of you know helping our our region and and mainly supporting women and and marginalized children and and i just want to get my pronunciation right is it copila or copila valley yeah, so we our Nepali name is Kopila Valley, okay. and the word Kopila in the Nepali language means bud. Um, it's like a little bud um, just before it blooms, and so we our community sort of project name is Kopila Valley, and um, you know based on the idea that all of our little children are little buds, and that if you give them their most basic needs and human rights and education that they'll they'll bloom into future leaders and change makers and bring change about in their country and then blink now foundation is sort of like our bigger international uh, foundation name it's our u.s based entity for a nonprofit, and it's changed the world in the blink of an eye hopefully with the idea that we're inspiring other people and other models and this kind of work around the world um sort of by like sharing the story and and um and sharing the model it's very open source we want we want there to be more of these projects in the world, especially around orphan care and education for children and empowerment of women. Absolutely. And I can't imagine there's any better way to inspire that change than to lead by example, which you seem to be doing incredibly well. Oh, thanks. So I'm going to cut this short right now and get to the talk. There's an audience Q&A and more from our conversation afterwards. So please stick around. And right now, here's Maggie Doyne from Creative Mornings, New York City on the topic of love. This is the first talk that I've given in a while. Um, I'll get to that. Um, but first, you're probably wondering, how does this, I'm 29, this 29-year-old girl from New Jersey end up 8,000 miles away, living in the middle of nowhere, in the foothills of the Himalayas of Nepal, raising children? Um, I'm going to take you back <laughs> to, to my own childhood. And um, this is me. I was just a fun, loving kid, I guess, 
If you ask me how to define my childhood, I would say I was raised with a lot of love. I was one of three sisters. I grew up in suburban New Jersey with a trampoline in my backyard, and I played soccer, and I went to a great public school, and I had good friends, and I would say it was a pretty typical upbringing. I went into my teenage years and was driven with the SATs and taking really hard courses and playing soccer and had college written all over my forehead. I was that girl that was just headed down that track of success and, you know, get into the best schools so that you can get on the right track for life and get a good job and make money and, and all of those things that we're told and expected to do, right? Um, and then suddenly when I was 17... Uh, all my friends were going to these great schools and these great colleges, and I was supposed to go, but I woke up with this feeling in my tummy. Um, and there's no way to describe it. I took everybody by surprise, but I was just like, I'm not ready to go to college. Um, I want to do something different. I think I want to travel the world. So literally, while all my friends were packing up and getting ready to go to school, I packed up that backpack right there, and I set off on a journey to travel around the world. I went to like six countries, traveled over 20,000 miles. I started out with a gap year program and ended up in the foothills of the Himalayas in northeastern Nepal, where I came to learn that a civil war was happening just across the border in a country that, believe it or not, I had never even really heard of, Nepal. Nepal <laughs> endured what I found out to be a 13-year civil war. Uh, I was working with refugee children. Uh, a lot of them were forced to flee their countries because of the civil war, because of conflict and violence um, from beautiful villages just like this. This was actually the first village that I ever trekked to. It was this beautiful rice-paddied green village with a river running through it and Everyone there lives off the grid without electricity or water. Just so, such, such a simple, beautiful life. Um, I was the first ever person to really go and immerse myself in this village. And I went with a friend who was a young refugee girl, just 13 years old, and watched her go back to her village from the first time after, after fleeing her country. And... Um, and something really pulled me in there. I was just moved by the beauty and the simplicity of life. And at the same time, my eyes were just open so wide about what I was seeing and what I was witnessing. And it was so different. And, and realizing what I was, how I was raised and how these children were living and these women were living after a civil war. Um, everybody always asks me, like, what was the moment, though? Like, how do you pick up and leave your life and your college plans. And for me, it was locking eyes with this one little child. Her name was Hima. And every single day in this trading post city that I was traveling through, I had to pass by a dry riverbed. And I'd literally have to walk across it. And along the dry riverbed, there were hundreds of children breaking rocks. And that's what they would be doing all day, every day. Little kids as young as five, all the way up to teenagers, just breaking stones into little pieces that I found out they would sell at the end of the day for about 100 rupees or one US dollar. And I locked eyes with this child and fell in love. She said, Namaste, Didi, which means hello, big sister. And I, um, I saw her, and it wasn't, it wasn't the sadness. She was going through garbage, and she was breaking rocks. That wasn't what actually stopped me in my tracks. It was her smile. 
And I thought, I can't go back and not and not do anything and not try to stop this. And one day, I want to walk across this dry riverbed, and I don't want to see a single child breaking stone. Um, so I enrolled him into school, <laughs> and this is her just a few months later in her school uniform. It was like $5 for an admission fee and a few more dollars for a uniform and a backpack. And what I realized is that that's really the only way to end the cycle of poverty and violence, and we have to start somewhere. And for me, it was with HEMA. And then came this addiction that I have of enrolling children into school. <laughs> um, it started with five, and then it became 10, and then 60. And um, today, there's not a single child breaking stone on that dry riverbed because they are, there are 400 of them enrolled into Coppola Valley School. Um, it's a project that I run. <laughs> And I learned and really truly believe that if we see something and we want to make the world a better place, I was, I was just 18, I was really young, but I believe that we can create the world that we want to live in just as we want to see it. And so that's what I did. Um, but I took it a step further and I had $5,000 of babysitting money saved up. I had a little business in New Jersey um, and I bought a piece of property that was $5,000. And um, I hated orphanages. I hated the way that our 80 million orphan children in the world were being raised. And in my 18-year-old, I guess a little bit of naive and optimistic mind, I thought, I'm going to build my own children's home. And I'm going to create a home that's beautiful and loving and where children feel like they're a part of a family, and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. So I took my $5,000 of babysitting money, and I did just that. And today, I'm the mom of 50 adopted kids. <laughs> That's right, I have 50 children. I know, I look really good, don't I? <laughs> um, so Coppola Valley, that's where I live now. I've been there for 10 years. There's no words to describe my love for these children and our family, and the only way I can describe it is to imagine dance parties and playing in the rain and camping trips and jumping off rocks. I tried to recreate my own childhood for, the, for these guys. And tucking them into bed every single night, um, everybody always asks me, like, what is it about Coppola Valley that just makes it so special and such a family? And you walk in, and we don't even say the word orphanage. It's a home, and we're a family. And I just say it's love. Like, even when I'm speaking at the World Bank and, like, the UN, I'm, they want to know what's the model, and I'm just like, it's really love. We, we love these kids so, so, so much. And I was living and am living this beautiful life surrounded by children, which is what I love and what I wanted. Um, it's so much more than just a home now. This is our family Christmas picture. <laughs> uh, we run a women's center for women who are widowed or victims of uh, domestic abuse and an empowerment training course. So they get vocational skills and business 101, and it's a safe place for them to come and learn a vocation each day. These are all 400 of the kids. It's a school. We're one of the top-performing schools in the entire region. Kids who come here are the first in their generation to learn how to read and write and really change the trajectory of their futures um, through getting an education. We are building the greenest school in the entire world right now. Um, we grow a lot of our own food. We run a nutrition program and a medical clinic. Um, and 
Just about two years ago, my life actually changed even more. I was going about my every single day. We were this happy family, and a baby um, named Ravi, who I named, was was literally dropped um, pretty much on our doorstep. He had lost his mother and his father um, and was suffering from malnutrition. And I had 50 kids already, and this was the time when I swore I would I would not take in another child. Um, but love, I think, and plans had, life had something different planned for me. And this baby came into our family. He was tiny. He was um, four and a half pounds. Actually, we struggled to get him to four and a half pounds. Um, suffering from malnutrition after his mother died when he was 11 days old. He had gone about a month and a half without food and had been left virtually to die. Um, and this little baby became the love of my entire life and our entire family's life. He was our joy and our laughter, and he had a really tough, really tough first few months. I actually brought him to the States for medical treatment, and this child was just everything, everything, everything to us. And, um, gosh, look at him. This is him just a few months later. He turned into this cherubic, chubby, happy little baby. (laughs) Even with all the sleepless nights in the world, I was so in love with this child. It was a love that I had never known that I don't think our family had ever known. This was our Halloween costume. (laughs) I was um, a princess, and he was a genie. (laughs) And our family photo, he just grew and thrived. He hit all of his targets when they said that He wouldn't, with a lot of physical therapy and a lot of support. And he lived on my baby Bjorn, on my chest, every single moment. And he slept on my chest every single night. (laughs) Little snowman. And he was uh, the love and light of our entire family. And six months ago, I was literally on top of the world. I was speaking all over... If you had asked me, is there anything that you want? Is there anything that you don't have? I would have said, no, I I don't need anything. We won the CNN Hero of the Year Award. All the kids were voting. You probably saw it all over Facebook. Um, I had everything. I was so, so happy. Our family was happy. The kids were doing well. They were entering into their teenage years. Um, And then one day, when I so least expected it, it was actually off from work. I was holding my baby all day. He was taking a nap. And um, someone else was watching him, and there was an accident at the house, and he died. Um, I ran downstairs from my bedroom, and I saw my 17-year-old giving CPR to my baby. And um, on December 30th of this year, he passed away, which is why I'm up speaking for the first time today. And it's been really hard. Um, I went blackout. I I went blackout. I thought I would die. If you had asked me if anything would have ever happened to me like this, I would have told you, no, there's just no way I'm going to die. There's no way. Holding his body, I, I felt like... I felt like a caged animal. It's really the only way to describe it seeing something like this and experiencing something like this. And then after that, 
I, I went into the deepest, darkest place, and I'm, I'm probably still in some of the deepest, darkest place I've ever been. And I wanted to quit. I wanted to leave everything. I really didn't want to live anymore. It just felt like there was nothing left for me here. And um, I came back to New Jersey, where I'm from, and I spent about two months in fetal position in bed alone, and I shut out the entire world, literally, like, chained off my doors. And I just cried and banged my head against the wall and lived in, like, a torture chamber. I guess that's the best way to describe it. Um, And then... One day, I woke up, and my friends and the people around me forced me to go to California. Um, They were like, you have to get back to work. That's Just try to do the little things, like get out of bed, try to work out, try to go for walks. So I, (laughs) my God, it was the hardest thing in the world, but I got up, and I got on a plane, and I had this conference from CNN Heroes that I was supposed to go to. And I actually went to California. Um, And I was supposed to go to this conference, right? And I haven't been out of bed, and I haven't really worked. And um, I go. And I start to, like, put my face in the sun. And I started to feel little things. I think my therapist described it as a dead plant. You're dead, Um, but there's this little teeny tiny, sometimes you see like a little speck or a green leaf, and she told me like when you see that green leaf or you feel it inside yourself, water it and give it sunshine and recognize it, and slowly and slowly and slowly, I started to feel this little speck of green life inside of me again. I could picture that little bud growing, and I didn't want to love another human being after the loss of that child. Love was like the scariest thing in the whole entire world. And I had opened myself up to so much love, and it was gone. And the craziest thing in the world happened in California. I fell in love. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was a romantic love, and this person just took me by the hand and took me on a road trip and took me on an adventure and found something in me, I don't know what, that (laughs) made me realize that I needed to keep going. And how ironic, right? So we decide to go on a road trip, and he lives in L.A., and we decide to drive up the entire coast of California all the way up to Canada and end in Vancouver. So we went through Big Sur and the Redwoods. And I cried, and I missed my baby on the baby Bjorn, but I started to smile again. I started to feel something, and I thought, what a miracle that I could feel love again and love another human being. And I missed my kids so much on that road trip, and I started to think about them and how guilty I felt for what happened and leaving them and the fact that they had lost their little brother. So I started writing them love letters. And I started to think about all the little things that I loved about them. And it could be like the way that their little ears curled at the bottom or their haircut or the way that they hugged me and wrapped their legs around me when they slept or (laughs) how naughty they can be. 
<laughs> and how funny they are. Like Anjali, my 13 year old, had shaved half of her head and went through this phase where she wanted a tattoo. <laughs> and just telling them all of the little things that I had never really told them and had never really thought about it. And I realized that it was those things that gave me something to live for, even like a missing tooth, those little stages in life that you treasure that are just so momentary in these spaces in time that pass by so quickly. So I started writing these love letters on my Instagram and posting them, and the kids in Nepal would read their love letter and wonder, when's mine coming next? And it became this beautiful practice and this beautiful exercise. And, and through writing these love letters for people in my life and for my sweet, beautiful children, I got through some of the anger and some of the things that I was frustrated about and some of the sadness, and I was able to realize that these were the things that were keeping me alive and these were the things that were keeping me going. So I wrote each of them a love letter <laughs> and eventually he and I uh, traveled back to Nepal. We made it <laughs> and I got back to my kids and it was just a few months ago. It was at a much different pace and I started living my life a little bit differently, um, but I realized that I had to live with my Ravi heart and that I just take every single moment. Um, I take every single moment and I try to find beauty in it and try to find those little things. And I realized that love is the thing in life that can cause you the most horrific, terrible pain, but it's also the only thing on the planet that can heal you. And it's ultimately the only thing that is healing me and that is making me capable of standing up on stage today. Um, love really saved me. And I'm not sure what I believe in anymore. I'm not sure what I believe in right now. And I'm not sure where Ravi is, but I'm climbing back. And I really want to keep going. I think there's so much we know. There's so much here to be done. And um, at the beginning of today, I asked everyone to write a love letter. And um, I wanted to read you my love letter. I wrote a love letter to Ravi. And this was a really hard letter for me to write, but I wanted to write it and read it. <sighs> Dear Ravi, sweet baby of my heart, this is killing me. This is the last thing on the planet I would have ever wanted. I want you here. I want you laying on my chest like you always were. I want to be stroking your hair and kissing your cheeks and splashing in the bathtub. I want you and our baby Bjorn going on adventures in the grocery cart, shopping for dinner and playing with your 49 brothers and sisters. I love you more than I've ever loved any, anyone or anything. You taught me the deepest kind of love I've ever known. I miss you so much. The word miss won't ever feel like enough. But all the wishing and hoping and praying in the world won't bring you back. I really want you to know how sorry I am for not being there for you when the accident happened. I'm sorry for letting you down. I've gone over the events of that day about a million times in my head, and nothing at the end will ever change. 
When I can't sleep at night and the pain feels like too much, I try to go back in time to that day when I took off of work and we drove over to the farm and watched the ponies and the goats. You giggled at the top of your lungs every time the goats jumped up over the fence and tried to eat the food out of our hands. Then we walked through the sunflower maze with a thousand of the biggest sunflowers we'd ever seen. We went and picked raspberry after raspberry after raspberry, and your chubby cheeks were covered in them. You were eating them faster than I could pick them, and I thought we were going to get in trouble because you're not supposed to eat the berries until after you pay. (laughs) (laughs) Then we went and played in the peach orchard, eating peach after peach after peach, and we sat under the peach tree while you practiced your crawling and your standing, and you giggled some more. (laughs) At night, I take myself back to underneath that peach tree. If heaven is a place, that's where I want to be. I remember how happy we were, and I actually remember thinking there in that moment that this was the happiest I'd ever been in my entire life. I remember you and I reenacting the scene from The Lady and the Tramp with you with one end of the noodle and me in the other, and how you would just laugh and laugh. And I remember dancing with you every single day, how you loved music and shaking to it. You were the best baby on the face of the planet. You were pure joy. You made everyone around you happy. You made our family happy. You made the world happy and full of hope. You spent your days dancing and giggling and clapping your hands. You'd look at me and hold my face and say, Mama, Mama, Mama. It's been so hard to live without you. I want nothing to do with a life without you. I miss you. (sighs) Because you'd be two right now. But I also miss you as a five-year-old and a teenager. And I'm sad I won't get to see the man you would have become. Because you would have been all that is good in the world. (sighs) I don't know where you are. But I want you back. You're my heart. And I'll live each and every day with my Ravi heart remembering you. (sighs) Thank you for teaching me the best kind of love that exists. And thank you for loving me more than I've ever been loved by anyone. And thank you for guiding me and protecting me for these past few months as my guardian angel. The only thing worse than losing you would have been to never have loved you at all. Um... That's my letter to Robbie, and I'm glad I got to share it because I never got to do a ceremony or anything special for him, and I guess my ask for today from everyone um, is to write a love letter, um, to write a love letter to someone that you never got to say something to, or maybe just someone that you love and hold dear. Love is... Love is a beautiful thing, and it's the thing that we have to hold on to and the thing that we need to treasure. And the only thing that will ever, in a million years, heal the world with the state that we're in, and it's healed me, and is still healing me. So please, please go write a love letter to someone or to many people and uh, just share your love today because we don't know how long we're going to be here, and the moment is all that we have. Thank you for holding me and, and being here and sharing this, this moment with me. Thank you so much.
Maggie and I discussed a few more things on the phone, but first there was a brief question and answer session at this talk, and we're going to share that with you right now. I don't have a question, but I, 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 all I would like to say is thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, it's incredible. And thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, I, I can't speak for everybody, but, I, but I'll try. But, but, but thank you. Uh, you, you. You definitely got me sitting over here. Uh, really, really appreciate not only what I have, but this moment and living within the moment. So thank you for that. And best of luck to you. Thanks. Thank you. Do I have future plans for the children, and, and what's our next step? Actually, I flew back here on Friday, and I'm here with two of my older kids, and um, one of them is this all-star soccer player. He loves Messi, and he's the captain of our team. The kids play a lot of sports. And his dream was to go to soccer camp, and he got a scholarship to go to a local soccer camp. So I came and dropped him off at camp. He saw grass for the first time and rolled in it, and we ran around the field together. And, um, you know, he's, he's doing a camp here. And then my oldest and my first little girl who I took in when she was just five, her name's Nisha, um, she's going to college and in two weeks, I'll fly to the Netherlands. She got this amazing scholarship to the United World College in Maastricht in the Netherlands. And I'm 29. I'm dropping off my first kid at college. <laughs> and I don't know how I'll do it, but I'll try. <laughs> um, but yeah, my future plans, everyone always asks, and especially right now, I'm my real biggest wish is to raise my children. And we're building this school and this whole sustainable grassroots community program. It's, it's amazing what we do. And our goal is really just to share this model for the world. This, because what we need is education and poverty alleviation. And I really truly know and believe from doing this work for the past 10 years that the only way to end violence, the way that we're seeing it, is by taking care of children and by raising them. And when children are raised without love, and care, and parents, and an education, then we see this, and we see these cycles repeat themselves. So what we do, the work through our school and our programs in Midwestern Nepal, we're hoping to replicate it and share it, and that other young peoples, which is who I speak with, take on this and, and do things here and in their communities and around the world. That's really the big wish. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So she asked if there's a way to give help and support. And there are so many ways. And if you go, um, you can read the 50 love letters on my Instagram or blinknow.org or Maggie Doyne. And also there's a whole website and we have so many initiatives going on at any given time. Um, but it's blinknow.org, and you can follow along on Facebook. And there's plenty of ways to help from donating to fundraising or Sometimes people even come all the way over to Nepal. So, Hi, Maggie. Hi. I started following you about a year and a half ago because I have a two-year-old myself. And, sorry. Rowdy really touched my heart as well. And when he passed, I spent two days crying myself because I was following you, your story, for the last year and a half. But as a mother to a mother, um, do you have any advice? Just, you know, because you have 50 children, I only have one. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, you know, the world has us at this, um, this pace that is just not the way it's supposed to be. 
And I know from living in Nepal that as mothers and parents and people, we're not meant to live in these houses and be on our own and do things on our own and be working and fighting this hard without community. And I've learned more than anything that the team around me and the community that I have and the mothers and the women, like they carried me and the world was following along with the story and and everyone assumed that, I mean, I was done for, like the world was just crying and the women around me like are the people who carried me and held me through this. And I, the best advice I have is to surround yourself with those people and those women and People make fun of me because I hang out with, like, all women and older women. <laughs> but I really say, like, that's because that's who I want to be. Surround yourself with the people you want to be. And when it comes to mothering, and I've learned this lesson really hard, you just hold your kids every moment. Hold them. Touch them. It's so fast. It goes so quickly and so fast. And the day that Ravi died... I stopped and I had held him on my chest for three hours right before he passed. He was just with me all day. And if I hadn't had that time with him and I hadn't taken that day off and the day off of work where I just drove him to a peach orchard, like those are the moments that we live for and just take them every day. There's no reason to be rushing about and stressing. I'm the, like the most anxious person ever, like about work and about email and about oh, like staying on top of it and meeting with this donor and like we got to get there and then there and then you get there and that's not good enough. You have to get to the next place. It's like this rush and I've just learned and when you have a baby, you learn that the easy way. Like nothing else matters except for that child and your moment with them as a mother. And it's also the biggest risk that we take because your heart is living outside of your body and that's just not natural. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's the long answer. Surround yourself with women and, and hold and touch your kids. And we don't know, we don't know what's going to happen even this afternoon. And when you live like that, like that's the way to live. Just knowing that everything is temporary. We're all going to go. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, Maggie. How are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> um, you're such a beautiful person and a beautiful mother. Thank you so much for sharing all this. It's like incredibly touching. Um, and I'm really sorry for your loss. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, obviously your children adore you. Um, how did the other kids in your family help support you during this time or like do sweet? I mean, I saw on Instagram, you know, you'd be like watching a movie and everyone would be around you um, and also help each other feel better through this really hard time. Yeah. Um, it's crazy because as a mother, you're the one that's supposed to offer comfort for your child. And it was a loss for our whole family, and it was a loss for them. They had lost their brother. But this was the one instance in my life where those roles were completely reversed. And I'm ashamed to say it, but I could not be a mother, and I could not get my head off the pillow. And um, those kids, they were there for me to hold me and yeah just like you said they would come into my room and just lay in bed and still I mean I cry every single day and they just come and they will like stroke my hand or let's say let's watch a movie or let's go out for a morning walk or like to see that parental sort of role reverse like they 
I needed them just as much as they needed me. And I knew that I needed to come back for them. And they did. They carried me through that time. They're still carrying me through. And when I cry, they just come and they stroke my cheek or they cry too. Or we go over to his site and we talk about him as much as possible. I think that's been the key. When I came back to Nepal after being away, I was like, we're not going to be that family that doesn't talk about this and doesn't say his name. And so Robbie's room is still Robbie's room right now. And we just talk about him and make him alive. Like, I didn't want to give this talk at all. I was just throwing up in that back room. Um, (laughs) But what would be worse is if I didn't stand up here and tell his story and tell the truth. And um, yeah, thank you. The kids have helped me more than anyone. That's it's brought us together as a family, that's for sure. Like, you'll see us, we just dance all the time, and we're cooking in the kitchen all the time, we're hugging all the time, we tell each other we love each other like a million times a day. It's great. <laughs> right as that Q&A was finishing, I'm not sure, but I think I heard a little bit of Tina Roth-Eisenberg laughing. For those of you who don't know, Tina is the Creative Mornings founder, And that leads me to my next question, which is, how does Creative Mornings happen for you? Where did this fit in the picture? Well, I've been, I've been a fan all along. I've always, I've always loved the talks and and watched them. And then I met Tina through sort of the way we all meet Tina. She's amazing. (laughs) And through mutual friends, she's, you know, everyone loves her. (laughs) And so she became sort of like a dear friend over the last few years. And the topic of love came up and she and Sally who have gotten to know really well, they've become friends and mentors and they were like, what's who better to talk about love than, than you? Like you're the mom of all these kids. So, and I couldn't, I obviously couldn't say no to that. And um, yeah, so it was an honor to give a talk on that topic. I was obviously really struggling at the time. And I think for me, I mean, I, I I agreed to do the talk way before my son passed away, but right. it was at, for me it was like a point in my healing process, like of wanting to hide away from the world and never get out of bed. And for me, that moment was like, I can do this. Like, let me show myself that I can talk and that I can I can get myself through this because up until that point, I hadn't really hadn't even really seen anyone. I was very much like on my own. So that was, that was kind of like the process for me of, they asked me, Tina and Sally both asked me, can you still do it? Obviously you don't have to still do it. And, um, no, I decided that I really wanted to try. And so I did. And, and for me, it was all personal. Like it was just wanting to heal and wanting to know that I could do it. Yeah. And I'm sure it was incredibly therapeutic as well. Yeah, I, I, when I was going through like my own therapy grieving process, I made these rules for myself that like I had to do things that scared me. I had to do the things that I didn't want to do. Like you can imagine you don't ever want to look at a baby again. You don't ever want to love a human being again. You don't ever want to get on stage. You really don't want to leave your bedroom. Um, and slowly as I went through the process, I would do these one like one brave thing or like one step a day. And the first one would be like just moving from my bed to outside in the sun or, and that in the whole process was like one of the really big brave things. And I would start by trying to do one thing every day and then little by little, just getting myself out and on my feet again and ultimately making my way back to the kids. And, and yeah, and through that healing process, I think, yeah, it, it was like therapy. I felt 
I've never felt as healed than after I gave that talk. I just felt like I had let something off my chest and it felt really good. Yeah. And the, and the energy in the room, you know, to know that that room was there for you, it was like a, like a one giant trust fall. Yeah. I think normally when you give a talk, you're giving it for other people. At least when I give a talk, I'm like, what message do I want these people to hear? What do I want them to take away? And that talk is the first talk I've ever given that it was just for me. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I was getting up there for myself and saying what I needed to say and what I needed to do for myself. And it was, it felt, that's what was healing about it. It wasn't, it was for me and only me. And I it's almost like the audience and whoever was listening didn't matter because it was my own thing that I needed to do. And this took place in New York City, which makes me wonder, what is your, when you do come back, what is your time like spent in the States? Um, it's, it really depends on what's needed. Um, it's, it's been fun this year. A lot of my children have been going to the States for like different student exchanges, and I've got to be there for them to see my world and where I grew up. Um, so I've been there for that. And I usually take a little breather during the summers <laughs> um, just because it's a monsoon season here and I, I like to take a little break when it's raining here every day. Um, but it depends on what the organization needs. I mean, I'm leading the foundation now and obviously a lot of my time is spent fundraising and raising awareness and um, it kind of it depends on where the organization needs me, but I try to spend as much time as I can here with the kids. And is this is this the first experience of your kids coming over here? Yeah, this this year was um, the year where the three of my children came and did a real like immersion and went to school actually in the town where I grew up. Oh and wow! It was it's been so much fun to watch. It's like my life in reverse. Like I grew up and went to Nepal and now I'm watching my kids go and do an exchange in the town I grew up in. But it's really fun. And I think important for them to understand where their mom comes from, where I come from and, and just, it opens up their eyes a bit and opens up different opportunities that they have. So it's been really, really cool. Like taking them bowling and to the movie theater, having them eat pizza for the first time. It's, totally a culture shock, but it's been really fun to have them see that part of my world. And is your family still in New Jersey? Yeah. So my mom and dad are in New Jersey, uh, where I grew up and my, both my sisters, I'm the middle of three girls and both my sisters are, have relocated to the West coast, (laughs) one's in Portland and the other one's in LA. (laughs) Um, so we, we make efforts to, to all get together, but We've become this pretty spread out family, which I would have never expected when I was little. We were very close, um, but it's been okay. (laughs) Well, your parents must think the West Coast is nothing compared to Nepal. I know. I know. Like all three of us girls are really adventurous. And I think at one point for Mother's Day, my little sister was in New Zealand. My big sister was in South America and I was in Nepal. And they were like, (laughs) what did did we do to create this? But I think it's like our generation in general is becoming, you know, it's just easier to travel and to see other places. And I think think it's really cool. Oh, definitely. And I'm actually glad you brought up this generation because education is something that comes up quite often in this podcast. And with all of the work you do in schooling, what you see in Nepal and your experience Mm -hmm. here in the States, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the state of education. Um. Well, I'm, I'm a big believer, no matter where we are in the world, of just needing cultural understanding and needing to experience other people and understand empathy. And um, I, 
Yeah, it's it's amazing how different the education systems can be no matter where you are in the world, even within the states, you know, like 10 miles away from the public school I went to is another public school where, you know, it's Newark, New Jersey, where there's <laughs> there's totally different issues than in the in the community that I grew up in. And um, I don't know, I, I'd like to see, we know that education is the path for everyone. Um, you know, and, and I think that the definition of education is going to be sort of redefined and and it's a lot bigger than we think it is. Like, I don't put education in a box of like, you have to go to college, you have to get this degree, you have to, it's, it's, it can't be about the destination. It has to be about the whole person, the whole child and how we're all learning and growing and evolving and becoming more aware of each other and how to, how to create more peace in the world and how to take care of each other. I think... I'd really like to see education moving in that direction in the States, you know, and all over the world, Western, Eastern, developing. I'd, I'd really love to see that. That's what I'm trying to teach my kids. And, mm-hmm. But no, there's, it's, it's ever evolving, and I'm really excited about the way that education is moving. And I think the next challenge for the decade will be how to bring that level of quality and access to everyone. Um, I think that's that's the key. We know the theory. We know what we need to do. We know what makes change. Now we need to implement it so that every child and every human being has has the ability to have to have that level of quality. Maggie, this this has been an outstanding call, and uh, we have just one more question before we let you go. If you went back ten years and met yourself, what's one thing you would share with her? Oh, such a good question. I think I would say. Maggie, it's going to be really hard and there's going to be challenges and days that feel impossible and insurmountable and like you'll never be able to get on your feet and stand up again, but you will get through it and love will reveal itself in unexpected places and you'll always find a way to continue. So keep going and keep going and just keep going. (laughs) Nice. Thank you so much, Maggie. This is this has been great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I know you've got your hands full. <laughs> I'm going to go put the kids to bed. <laughs> okay, take care. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. So that's our season. And before we come to a complete close, we wanted to do something just a little bit different. We wanted to share the Creative Mornings manifesto with you. And since you hear from me all the time, we thought it would be fitting to bring a friend in to read it. And so would you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Adriana Dufay. Thanks for coming out to Queens. <laughs> I love Queens. I know it's a trek from you. You said you share a building with Creative Mornings. I work in the in the same building. Yeah, um, they're forty seven Bergen, and I'm fifty one Bergen, and we're both right on the dividing line. And anyone who knows uh, New York knows that to get from Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, to Astoria, Queens, is uh, one of the most difficult tasks without a car. Yeah, well, I did. I took a car, but the BQE is no, no yeah. bueno. It's not even good when you have a car. Yeah, no. <laughs> but to get from Brooklyn to Queens for people who aren't from New York is is to take a train through Manhattan. Yeah, through Manhattan, take the end. So what is what is it that happens in that building that you share with Creative Mornings? At the bottom of the building is a performance space. It's called the Invisible Dog Art Center, and they have 
theater performances, um, lots of art exhibitions, um, awesome interactive dance, singing, all sorts of stuff curated by Lucien Zayan, who is amazing. And then above the Invisible Dog Art Center are artist studios, two floors of artist studios. And my husband, Mac, has one of those studios. We actually have a couple different spaces. And your husband, Mac, is Mac Primo. Mac Primo, yep, the artist. And he did, uh, he actually did a Creative Mornings Talk. He did a Creative Mornings Talk on work, which was fantastic. That was so fun. And your affiliation to Creative Mornings, aside from your husband's talk, is really more of a personal experience with Creative Mornings founder, Tina Roth Eisenberg. There's a really sweet, like, circle that happened in my life where I was was working, it was my last uh, corporate job. I worked you know, I started my life as an artist, as an actor. And I did that until I was 30. And then I got a corporate job. My husband and I got married. I got a corporate job. Um, And it was fine. It was really interesting. And um, anyway, my last corporate job, I was going to South, I went to South by Southwest with the team. And uh, I remember being really unhappy for almost a year. But, you know, I was making good money and it was relatively interesting. Anyway, so I had known about Tina And I dragged my entire team to see Tina do the keynote speech. And uh, I don't want to mischaracterize it because I don't remember the whole thing. But in her speech, she talked about the right things to do to do the work you love. You know, for example, work on your side projects like Tatley. So one of the the things she said was, surround yourself with like-minded people. And I looked at the people on my team, the job that I'd had for the last year that I'd been so unhappy with, and I thought, these are totally not my people. These are like 100% not my people. And I really decided, okay, I'm going to find some people that are like-minded and I'm going to go work with them and I don't even care what I'm going to do. So that was a huge, that gave me the courage to leave that job, which was not easy. That's when I started working with my husband. So we have a, we have a business together and um, I don't work corporate anymore. And that was really scary for me to do that. Anyway, now I work in the same building as Tina and I feel like, well, she's like-minded. Right. <laughs> if I could have picked anyone to work with, it would have been her. So it's great. That's amazing. And so what's the, what do you and your husband do? What's the business or do you work with uh, your husband's art? Yeah, I work with his art business. So he, um, you know, he had been an artist by himself and we had had these two separate jobs and he started getting more and more opportunities, but he couldn't take them because he just couldn't manage that much workflow. And I walked in with a bunch of digital experience, a bunch of production experience and corporate experience. And I was able to just sort of help manage the studio for him so that he could just go do more work. And what, what type of work does he do specifically? Makes videos. He makes, um, he directs commercials. He directs like Ford commercials. I think he talked about that in the creative morning speech. But then as a studio, we do art projects. Our, um, we have an employee, Divya, and we support her in art projects she wants to do. And I put on, I produce events that are storytelling events, um, keeping some of my theater stuff going. And um, yeah, we just do kind of kooky art projects all the time. Uh, there's nothing more creative mornings than that. I know? just, I'm so grateful. I'm just so grateful. I feel like she was the right messenger at the right moment and gave me the courage I needed to do something different. Yeah. That's, that's what Creative Mornings is. And so now you're here to read us the Creative Mornings Manifesto as a way to close out this season of the podcast. And I'm going to go ahead and let you do that. Okay. Everyone is creative. A creative life requires bravery and action, honesty, and hard work. We are here to support you. 
celebrate with you, and encourage you to make the things you love. We believe in the power of community. We believe in giving a damn. We believe in face-to-face connections, in learning from others, in hugs and high fives. We bring together people who are driven by passion and purpose, confident that they will inspire one another and inspire change in neighborhoods and cities around the world. Everyone is welcome. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Of course. What an honor. If you like what you've heard this season and previous seasons and you would like more seasons, please head over to the iTunes podcast page and leave us a rating or review. Thank you. Our thanks to Maggie Doyne, our global partners, once again, MailChimp, Shutterstock, and Wix, and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of our Creative Mornings New York City community. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com.